Hello, it's Roz Taylor. If you're not following The Bunker on Twitter, why not? We're at Bunker underscore pod with previews, extra info, robust debate and much more. What does the Republican Party stand for anymore? During his time as president, Donald Trump took over the GOP and made it a vessel for his own ambitions and whims, turning it into an entity which felt intrinsically beholden to his personality. Since his departure, the party has felt simultaneously enthralled to its former figurehead and rudderless. Is there any way for it to turn itself off and on again and return to the values that it once upheld? Or has it passed the point of no return? Here to discuss this with me for The Bunker USA is co-director of UCL's Centre on US Politics, Julie Norman. Welcome to The Bunker, Julie. Great to be here. Thank you. Julie, historically, what has the what has the GOP stood for? When you think of a Republican, do you imagine something different to the, uh, the current crop of uh, eccentric, let's say, politicians that we see before us? Well, a bit. And certainly parties do change over time. But I would say the GOP has traditionally stood for limited government, uh, support for free market economic policies, a sense of individualism. That's really where their domestic focus has been. Increasingly more conservative social policies as well on issues like abortion, on same-sex marriage, on gun control. But really that sense of small government has been um, the real defining factor of the GOP in the past. And also interesting, usually a slightly more hawkish foreign policy than we traditionally saw from the left. And that that is definitely different from what we see now in some ways, I would say the party is starting to be a bit more big tent with conservatives, libertarians, centrists, populists. And so we've seen a bit of a swing from more of that pro-business, small government, Reagan era kind of Republicans to definitely more populist bent in the party that I think Trump really tapped into. And uh, really just um, you know, a certain strand in the party that's really about pushing back at anything that kind of be dubbed as the liberal elite, whether that's government institutions, um, cultural institutions, media, etc. Before today, I went on the Republican National Committee website and I read a page which outlined the party's platform, which I thought might be quite useful to pick apart. So this starts off by saying Republicans believe in liberty, economic prosperity, preserving American values and traditions and restoring the American dream for every citizen of this great nation. As a party, we support policies that seek to achieve those goals. What policies does the party really back at the moment and do they align to that message, do you think? Yeah, well, I would say many um, within the party, I think, would acknowledge that the GOP is struggling right now to have a strong policy message. Um, with that said, there is still uh, a large uh, percentage of the party that's looking to, again, reduce the size of government. So still going back to that pretty typical limited government standpoint by trying to limit entitlement programs, um, you know, limit, uh, you know, welfare programs, these kinds of things. And so we've seen some pushback there. Other big policies for the party right now are probably around issues like immigration, um, which has been increasing, um, increasingly salient issue in recent years. Crime, which has historically been a big issue for the GOP and increasingly uh, education as well. And I think we're seeing a bit more tapping into culture war issues and we're starting to see some policymaking around those Um Abortion, what's considered like critical race theory, the way that the way it's dubbed in the party, and, and most importantly, I'd say right now is um, is trans rights or, or uh, policies affecting um, LGBT, but especially trans individuals in the U.S. So you have kind of these more traditional 
issue areas like immigration, crime, education, and then these kind of newer culture war issues that I would say where most of the energy of the party is going into right now, at least in kind of this year before um, before the elections. And I would note, too, we've We've seen some interesting flips in the party, too, on more uh, foreign policy and international uh, looking ways, too, in the sense that um, the party was traditionally one that was very much about free trade and, and these kinds of things, a much more protectionist approach right now within the party and kind of an America first outlook and uh, increasingly non-interventionist as well. So, again, a party that is historically quite hawkish is probably the one most outspoken right now on saying um, you perhaps limiting aid to Ukraine or not intervening in other parts of the world. You mentioned America first there, which drags us to our uh, to another mention of someone we always have to speak about, which is Donald Trump. On policy is a problem that he was as a president when the Republicans were in power, didn't really have much of a defined platform. And then since then, they've been in opposition. So it's sort of it's quite hard for them to have much of a policy platform when they had when they had power in their hands, they had someone who didn't really know what to do with it. And then since then, they haven't had very much power. Yeah, no, that's true. And again, often the party that's, uh, you know, in opposition obviously doubles down on that role and, and uses that position like they do here to challenge the party in power. So we certainly saw that for the first two years of Biden's administration uh, coming out of the Trump years. Um, the Trump years, again, from a Republican point of view, was not totally a, a, a letdown. Um, the Trump's tax cuts did pass, which is something that I think many Republicans were pleased with. Trump did roll back a number of government regulations, environmental and otherwise that um, many Republicans would support kind of across the traditional versus more uh, new Republican spectrum. So in terms of policies, I would say you know, many Republicans were kind of fine with what Trump did on that on that level. And I would add, I would say Republicans are always a little bit on the back foot on this because it's a more small government party. You're not going to see the big, bold Build Back Better or uh, New Deal, these kinds of uh, big government policies, because that's just not what they're aiming to do. They're looking to restrict government. So that's more where you see the policymaking happening. So there was there was CPAC recently. When I was at Newsweek, CPAC felt like a really big thing because it was a real place for Trump to just say whatever crazy shit he wanted to say then, he would say it there. Uh, th- can we actually glean anything from that anymore, or is it is it quite fringe? Because you mentioned they were they seem to be discussing a lot of the the culture war side of things there. Does that mean very much, or is that the the edges of the party? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, just as the party has shifted, CPAC has certainly shifted as well. So CPAC traditionally, um, you know, a conference, a convening place for um, potential candidates, for donors, for advocacy groups, for um, for, for many members of the, of the base and the conservative movement to meet, um, really used to be something that was watched very closely for seeing where the party was going, where conservatism was going. And I would say what we saw in last week's uh, meeting was a very, um, very different, very, very pro Trump dynamic, to, to be frank. I mean, it was almost like a Trump rally from um, from most of the, the footage and from most of, of the speeches. And so you really see him dominating in that space, which I think does reflect his hold on still a very strong element of the party um, and a, you know, underscoring the idea that we shouldn't be, be writing off Trump just yet. But also, I think for CPAC itself, it kind of um, marginalizes it to that part of the party. And there were many uh, strong voices right now, DeSantis to others who were not even there this time around. Is that a reflection on the GOP somewhat itself, that it's, it's almost marginalizing itself by focusing on issues which maybe for the wider public aren't actually what's what's front and center for their minds at the moment partially yeah i mean i think this is you know, we're we're kind of seeing this um 
uh, growing pains right now for the party about which way they're going to go in this is this a post-Trump era? Is this a between-Trump era's era? You know, there's this big question mark of where the party is going to go. And so you see the party kind of um, moving in these different ways. You see different actors within the party trying to stake out their um, their influence within it. And so I, I think we're kind of seeing these, these pockets emerge. And so CPAC has obviously kind of gone with this more Trump pocket um, in, in a way that's not quite as broadly representative as it would have been seen even several years ago. Going back to the the platform, the official platform from the RNC there. So they also speak about wanting to protect constitutionally guaranteed freedoms, ensuring the integrity of our elections and maintaining our national security. So you mentioned they are they are less having a, a national security policy in particular at the moment. They're not as hawkish as they once were. But also, does it ring really hollow given the news that's emerging about Trump and the way that he he handled his defeat? Does that feel like such an empty message from them now? Well, it certainly does for many. I mean, these references to security and, and even more so, I think, to the, the integrity of our elections. But at the same time, um, I think we, we need to remember that Trump's supporters and base really do think that election integrity is a problem. And one of the, um, you know, the savviness of Trump's lies about um, widespread voter fraud was that he convinced people who really were concerned about election integrity that they needed to stand up and defend democracy because of that. So in a way, he's he's tapping into and even exploiting, I think, what are real commitments and a real, um, you know, a, a, a genuine sense of, of wanting to protect elections and, and protect American institutions by suggesting that they were flawed and mobilizing people in this way. So I think he... Um, like I said, he's exploited that. And, and that's really unfortunate to see, though, again, the rhetoric, I think um, many who even follow him think that's exactly what they were doing, defending the integrity of elections. Is there a sort of painful feedback loop here that people like Trump are, they're focusing on issues which are maybe falsified or blown up or simply just not true. And then they're convincing members of the public that they are the the forefront issues of the day. And so we've got this weird this weird mix here of the GOP just focusing on problems that don't really exist and their supporters thinking that those problems really do exist. Can the GOP go back to focusing on real stuff? Yeah, when I think there was a mix of that. And one, I would say, you know, the, the idea of election integrity is something that, you know, is something that should be taken seriously, I think, and, and is by members of all parties. But the way it was inflated as if there was this idea of widespread fraud was was where the issue was. So I think, again, he's he's savvy about taking something that is real, but I'm um, just amplifying it to just uh, like astronomical kinds of terms. But I think the other thing that we see with Trump's support is many of his supporters were supporting him because of bread and butter issues, because they felt he was better on the economy. They think he was better on jobs. They they don't like um, some of the directions that Democrats or the left want to take things. So while there is that, that MAGA base and the election uh, kind of group, there were many just Trump voters who were voting because of the issues that really do matter the most. To voters, and that's something that uh, that I think we need to remember. Mm, is some of that presentation then? It's about what voters think and feel, and unfortunately, maybe that doesn't always chime with objective reality. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, there's a sense of um, trying to mobilize voters, find the things that will make people most passionate, find the things that will, um, yeah, just galvanize your your base. And I think both parties try and do that. And Trump was extremely um, good at doing that with not only tapping a Republican base, but a, a base that really had not been tapped by the party previously. And um, as we may talk about later, he was very um, 
again, savvy in, in working with Fox, uh, not working with Fox News, but but liaising, I would say, uh, with Fox News in terms of having that be a sort of megaphone for amplifying some of these issues, people um, watching Fox News, seeing these things as bigger issues that they were, mobilizing around them, and as you said, kind of creating this cycle of, um, of a feedback loop. Hmm. Well, let's stick with that since we're on that now. What is going, what's going on with Fox News? What is happening there? <laughs> Tucker Carlson is saying some stuff about new January 6th footage, but then at the same time we're seeing there are these revelations coming out that Rupert Murdoch maybe knew a little bit more about the, the mistruths, let's say, that uh, Donald Trump was spouting. So, yes, there's a lot going on with Fox News these days. Two main stories. One um, is that Tucker Carlson, who's a very well-known um, Fox News commentator, is uh, recently had access to, I think, about 40,000 hours of footage from the January 6th uh, uh, riot and went through that selected some clips and basically uh, prepared a, a package and a show that suggested that January 6th was much more peaceful and that um, the uh, the allegations of, of widespread violence and, and wrongdoing was, was overinflated and whatnot. So that aired this last week. It's gotten pushback from Capitol Police, from um, notably the White House, and even from bipartisan members of Congress. So uh, Senate Minority Leader Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell coming out very strongly against this portrayal of January 6th, which Again, the congresspersons lived through and all of us watched unfold on TV. So um, by really trying to paint that narrative. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's sort of any new footage can't eradicate the old footage, which we all saw happen at the time, can it? Exactly. And I think um, I, I can't speak for, for Tucker Carlson, obviously, but my sense of this was a sense of trying to push back against, say, the January 6th hearings, which really, um, you know, showed uh, it in very long terms how things played out that day. And this is trying to provide, I think, um, a counter narrative that is appealing to Trump's base um, that offers kind of a different story just with selective uh, choosing of these um, of these clips. So that's one thing. The other thing that is going on right now is there is a um, a court case going on um, with Fox News, uh, and I won't go into all the details of that. But but some of the elements that are coming out in these court cases are text messages and communications of Fox News employees, commentators, anchors um, in that post election period, uh, saying essentially that they did not believe some of Trump's allegations, but were continuing to air them and give voice to them because they were good for ratings. And this is emerging from the the Dominion voting defamation suit, isn't it? Exactly. So Dominion Voting was one of the um, providers of voting machines during the 2020 elections. Um, they were uh, alleged by Trump and then by by Fox to have been, um, you know, faulty machines to have enabled a lot of the voter fraud. So they are essentially suing Fox News for amplifying that narrative. So that's where a lot of these text messages and uh, and other kinds of communications are now coming to light. Mm, and th- that seems to go right to the to the top from what I can glean. So Rupert Murdoch has been folded into this as he actually knew a little bit or had suspicions that maybe what Trump was saying wasn't quite 100%. Certainly. So we've heard that from Murdoch. We've heard it from some of um, Trump's most uh, loud uh, allies, I would say, at Fox, including Tucker Carlson, including Sean Hannity, with those who were doubting these um, things that Trump was saying, even acknowledging that it could be quite dangerous, but still feeling like this is what 
their viewership wanted to hear. This is what Trump's base wanted to hear. So they kind of made a business decision to lean into that, even though they were aware that it was not um, correct. You spoke there about a creation of a sort of counter narrative. And that to me feels like something that the the Republican Party is consistently trying to do. It almost seems like it's constantly trying to be somewhat contrarian. So in their uh, in the, the platform, returning to that, they say that as the left attempts to destroy what makes America great, the Republican Party is standing in the breach to defend our nation and way of life. Is this just a party that stands against things now? It doesn't really stand for for anything. Yeah, I would say the party has certainly become very reactionary, very oppositional. And again, I think many in the party who are serious about its future realize that this is a problem. They need to be a bit more constructive and have their own platform and policy and not just uh, kind of going after the left or the left elite or what have you. Um, but we know, however, from uh, from political psychology, from other studies, that it's it's much easier to unite people, to galvanize people, to mobilize people, often against something than for something. And we, we see this operating to some extent in both parties now, I would say, with you know, many Democrats voting more against Trump than, than for Biden or for something specific that Democrats are offering. Um, but I think especially for the GOP right now, as they struggle to articulate a unified platform as they kind of struggle to unify these different emerging camps, that criticism of the left has become the primary unifying rallying cry. These people who are serious about the future of the GOP, are there very many of them, are there very many of them left or have they gone, this is a bin fire and I want nothing more to do with it? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I would say there is still a number of conservative think tanks where I think there's interesting ideas coming out of, um, you know, a lot of it's leaning into more um, pro-family policies that they think many moderates and even some on the left would support as well, whether it's child tax credits or more support for, for parents and these kinds of things. Um, so that's, kind of one area, you know, others are again kind of focusing on this, you know, how can we just make government a little bit smaller, that kind of thing. So there are still some serious thinkers there, but I would say the public face of the party has almost been held hostage in a way by the need to kind of sate the more populist Trump-leaning wing that um, is not so interested in some of those policies. And, uh, you know, it is really more about the cultural issues, about the um, questioning institutions, about who can be most disruptive. And so those are the voices that right now are getting the most attention, even if they're not the most representative necessarily. We've seen with the uh, with the Democrats, they were quite a broad church. And then Ron Klain did a lot of work to sort of bring the the left and the more moderate members together. You mentioned in a, a very polite way that the GOP is quite a broad church of itself. Is that is that doable there? Sort of Tim Scott is positioning himself as maybe a 2024 candidate. Could he or anyone else actually bring that together? And even if he wanted to, would it still be, oh, let's all come together to fight the evil forces of the far left? Yeah, it's a tough challenge right now, I think, for non-Trump voices in the party, because on the one hand, there's very much a need for them. We we know there's, you know, a, probably about, you know, 20% of the party or so that is, you know, kind of never Trump. They are, I think, very open to voices like Tim Scott's, to one who can um, you try and unify the party a bit more. But along that, we know there's at least a third, um, you know, if not more of the party that's very devoted to Trump. And so you need to be able to 
give that message in a way that doesn't uh, alienate that base and can can kind of win them over as well. So I think the catch-22 here comes is that the more of those more moderate conciliatory voices that enter the race for 2024, the more they split the opposition vote to Trump and perhaps give him a win simply by plurality, if not by majority. So with that said, the message, I think, is very important and interesting. And I think uh, you know, Tim Scott is very interesting um, candidate himself to be delivering that. I think his voice in 2024 could be an interesting one. He is you know, quite notably one of the few um, Black Republican senators. And I think he would kind of challenge the narrative that the Democratic Party is necessarily the most representative for people of color, the common refrain that the GOP is racist, that like he, he kind of throws, um, he, he upsets that and he disrupts that way of thinking. And so I think um, his voice is an interesting one to have emerging right now. On that wider perception of the Republican Party, how does the, how does the general public feel about the GOP at the moment? It, you know, obviously, Trump lost the presidency, but then the midterms, you know, they did well in winning the House, but maybe not as well as we we might have expected. I know it's hard to put 50 states into one unified message, but how does the public actually feel about this party? Yeah, well, as you noted, I mean, the midterms, I would say it was clear that Republicans underperformed in that. They did take the House, but by an extremely slim margin, did not take the Senate when many were expecting you know, that that red wave, which um, just ended up being more of a the little pink trickle, as it, as it were. And so I would say in that sense, um, we saw a little bit more pushback and specifically some pushback to the very um, far MAGA candidates who were the most associated with election denialism, such as like Carrie Lake in Arizona. So I do think that was notable that voters did seem to care about candidate quality. They did seem a little um, uh, tired of the election denialism narrative. But with that said, we're still very ready ready to support Republicans. The other thing I'd note is that if we look at data from last year, um, the Republican Party gained more voters than Democrats did. So if we look at who is registering as Republicans versus registering as Democrats, um, there were about a million new registrations for Republicans compared to about 700,000 for for Democrats. So um, you know, Democrats got a little bit of registration bump after the Roe versus Wade overturning. Um, but what we saw more of was, um, I think, people who had you know, maybe become independents under the Trump years came back to the party uh, during this last year or two. And so we've actually seen an increase in Republican numbers compared to Democrats by voter registration. Eventually, the party will have to move past Donald Trump. And I would love to stop having to speak about this guy. Uh, do you think that can can happen? And if they're going to do it and they have to do it at some point, why don't they just do it now and get it out of the way? Yeah, I mean, the party right now has a pretty deep bench, which is interesting. And I think uh, if in this next cycle, they can move past Trump, which is a big if, um, there are a lot of rising stars in the party. Um, Ron DeSantis, I think, is getting the most attention these days. And according to polls, has the best chance of challenging Trump, though he too, I think, would... um, would find that difficult if the field gets too wide. You know, Nikki Haley is running, has already announced. We've mentioned Tim Scott, um, Glenn Youngkin, the uh, um, a new voice in Virginia, who is kind of an up and coming rising star in the party. So there are many others, I think, who are looking and ready to step into that space. But as we've mentioned, I think CPAC really illustrated it, that the 
not just the numbers for Trump, but the level of enthusiasm for him is still very high in the party. It's less than it used to be, but you are still looking at someone who's easily polling in the 40, 50 percent um, range, which you know usually is, is considered very good for someone at this at this point. Um, and any of these new candidates has to, on the one hand, differentiate themselves from Trump enough to be different and interesting, but has to carry his voters and not alienate them as well. It's very hard to thread that needle. On a final note, logically, where do you think for the longevity of the Republican Party, where do you think it should go? You know, if you were if you were in charge of their platform, where do you think it should go? And then on a more negative side, uh, where do you think it probably actually will go? Yeah. So again, I would say 2024 is really going to be a crucial year for the party. They've gone through now three cycles where I would say Trump or Trump endorsed candidates have um, you really been seen to have dragged the party down and, and had them underperform. I think if they go with Trump as a nominee, they're going to be um, in a difficult space again for 2024. If they can get past that, though, it'll be really interesting to see uh, how they move forward, because they're gaining ground. Obviously, they've gained ground um, enormously over the last 10 years with the working class. They really are more of the, the working class party now in the United States. They've made ground even under Trump with traditionally um, democratic demographics like Latinos, um, even among African-Americans. So they are they are growing in very interesting ways right now that if they, um, I think if they reoriented themselves to a more palatable like a platform that's not so much about overthrowing institutions or or challenging uh, kind of these ways of doing things. They'll get a lot of support for their economic policies um, and also for some of their uh, more culture war issues and whether one agrees with those or not. So so I, I can see them riding this out and kind of doing okay. With that said, they would be a party that's much uh, further right. It would maybe be more populist, which could be interesting in some ways, but um, perhaps very dangerous in others. Um, but I can see them them writing this this out and uh, kind of reorienting. I would say everything I would say is not happening in isolation. A lot of what Democrats are doing is responding to the current GOP. A lot of what the GOP is currently doing is responding to what they see Democrats and especially progressives doing. So there's a lot of give and take right now. And ideally for me, I would like to see both parties kind of um, let the cooler heads prevail. I think there's been um, a lot of uh, a lot of attention given to very loud voices on both sides that are not particularly representative of either party. And it would be uh, it would be helpful for both, I think, to reorient around where their majorities actually sit. Julie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Listeners, if you enjoy this podcast, remember you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. So this is Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for joining me for the Bunker USA. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>